Well, it's with a lot of joy this morning that I introduce, get to introduce you to Steve Woodworth. He is our guest speaker, and he was our guest speaker for the men's retreat. And sometimes you go on retreats, and you're like, I wish I could bring more home with me. So we did. Yeah. <laughs> he was yeah. a blessing on so many levels. And I know you're going to be blessed by the word that God will speak in and through you. So Thanks. thank you, Steve. All right. Thanks, Thad. It was, it was an amazing uh, opportunity to draw away, and, um, and you probably already know this, but just by way of, of uh, helping to convey it again and again, you, you're so blessed here at this church with some phenomenal men, uh, if you didn't know that already. Some guys that have just that genuine heart and a hunger for the Lord, um, who love you, you know, love their spouses, love their kids, genuinely want to serve the Lord, and are looking for ways to, to be leaders in this community. Um, and I'll also say, if any of you have been fighting with your spouse about whether or not uh, they snore and they're trying to convince you they don't, they're liars. All of them are liars, every single one of them. So, two things I learned. Um, we're going to be uh, looking at a handful of uh, Proverbs this morning uh, on the theme of hope. And what I would like to do is I'll go ahead, I'll, there are three different ones, and so we'll jump around a little bit. I'm going to read all three of them at the beginning, and then I'll open us with prayer and begin our time in the Word this morning. Proverbs 10:28 says, The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Proverbs 13:12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And Proverbs 24, 14, Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we come to you this morning, I know that, that your sheep do not need to hear the opinions of another man, Lord. What they need is the words of life. What they need to hear this morning is from you, Lord God. We pray that you would come and by your spirit, Lord, you would, you would take these words of life that you have given us, Father, and they would be far more than just information, and they would move from our head to our heart where they would actually take root, Lord, where they would be planted. They would produce fruit, Lord. They would go beyond the walls of this church, Lord, into their neighborhoods, into their workplaces, into their families, Lord God, into the utter ends of the earth until the world knows your name. Father, we pray, most importantly, that for each and every one of us, including the one speaking now, Lord, that all of us would leave looking more like Christ than when we first arrived, because we saw him lifted up. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, looking out at the crowd this morning, and... Um, it's a diverse crowd. It is one of the things I noticed when we first went on the retreat and grateful for this intergenerational ministry here. And for each one of you, you probably know already that there, there tends to be with each generation, regardless of what your age is, there was like an anthem. There was a song. Maybe you liked it, maybe you didn't, but it, but it tended to capture something of the essence of what your generation was about, right? So where, where are my, my folks in Gen X? Are you out there, my people? Okay, a handful of you. Right? You might not know this song if you're not part of it, but one, one of our anthems, and again, you may have not liked this song or not, by a, a group called the Smashing Pumpkins. Right? Um, the words went like this. The world is a vampire, sent to drain. 
Secret destroyers hold you up to the flames. And what do I get from my pain? Betrayed desires and a piece of the game. Someone will say that what is lost can never be saved. And you can sing it with me if you want. Despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage. I mean, that, that, I mean, if you wanted to understand what our generation was all about, just despair, hopelessness, just rampant cynicism, right? Burn it all down, right? All the institutions, everything. Um, and I, whenever I, I talk or play that song, talk about that song, my, my wife was also part of that generation, but she was like listening to Jars of Clay at the time or something like that, you know? She doesn't get with that vibe. And so whenever I, whenever I bring it up, she says, I don't know that everybody continues to think about that song the way that you do. And I say, well, that's because, um, that's because you're not in my office every single day, to be totally honest. Because the reality is, is whether, whether or not you, you uh, genuinely like that song or not, day in and day out, and I'm not going to assume that Hicks and Prez is any different than the church where I pastor or where any of the places I've pastored for the last 20 years, that the world is full of people who are desperate for hope. And that even in this room, I don't need to know all the individual stories, but I know just because we are human beings on planet earth, that there are marriages that are struggling in this room. And there are parents who are deeply concerned about the anxiety and the depression or, or their kids that have just gone off the rails and given up on the faith, that there are, there are stories of pain and brokenness physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's here in this room. And so whether or not we want to sing those words together, the reality is is that for every single one of us, as we journey on planet Earth, as broken people in a fallen world, we do continue to struggle with hope, to hold on to hope. Even one of the psalmists who wrote so eloquently said it this way, I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Darkness is my closest friend, he writes. Or to put it another way, I am just a rat in a cage. It's a human condition issue, right? It's not a generational issue. Every generation in their own way has struggled. What does it mean to continue to hold on to hope in a world that is increasingly dark for many of us. And so we're going to walk through these passages this morning and we'll begin with with just defining this term. What do we even mean when we say the word hope? What does hope define? How is it defined by the Bible in particular? This first Psalm, Psalm, uh, Proverbs, Proverbs 10, 28, the hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. And so right from the very beginning, the writer of Proverbs wants to contrast these two things for us in our life. He says, the hope of righteousness versus the expectations of the wicked. All right, and in order to to wrap our minds around this word hope, uh, let's just talk real briefly about a few of the ways that it comes up in everyday conversation, the ways that we are already regularly using this word hope. Um, It can be fairly benign, can it? We can talk about whether or not we hope it snows or rains in this season, or we hope we get a promotion, we hope the car doesn't break down, we hope our team wins, we hope maybe this item goes on sale. We use that kind of language, and we use it in really serious ways. That I hope I don't lose my job, that I hope it's not cancer, 
And I hope my kids are okay. And I hope my marriage survives. The um, theological dictionary defines hope this way. It says, to trust in, wait for, look for, or desire something or someone to expect something beneficial in the future. And another said in a similar way, the desire and search for a future good, difficult but not impossible to attain. And according to these, all of those are proper uses of the word hope, that when we use it in everyday language in our conversations, these dictionaries would say, yeah, that's hope. That's exactly what we mean. And to be fair, the Bible does have some instances of that kind of hope that we're talking about, that, that when Ruth is looking to, uh, to get married, she hopes she can find a husband. That farmers regularly throughout the Proverbs and Psalms and wisdom literature, they are, they're hoping for good weather, hoping for good crops, hoping for good outcomes. And Paul himself even, he hopes on a number of occasions that he will be able to visit different churches. It's that use of hope, but by far, in a way, the more common use of hope is something far deeper than that. It would be wiser for us when we use that kind of hope to use the word instead, optimism. It's really what we're talking about at the end of the day. Optimism. It's this passive state while we sit idly by and we anticipate some sort of good outcome. That's really what we're saying. And there's a confidence that things will continually get better instead of worse. And I say optimism instead of hope because oftentimes the way that we use this word, it's, it's rooted ultimately not in God's word, not in God's character, not in God's acts in our lives in the past or what we hope for in the future through Christ, but what it's ultimately rooted in for many of us when we use the word hope, it's our reasoning, it's our own logic, it's our circumstances, it's our belief in our own abilities. Those are the things ultimately that we're holding on to. But the majority of the Bible speaks to us about a radically different kind of hope. So much so, it is, it is so drastically different than this kind of optimism rooted in my abilities, my logic, my circumstances, that as one commentator said, the hope with which the Bible is concerned is something very different. And in comparison with other hope, it is scarcely recognized at all as hope. It's almost like we need a different word to understand what the Bible is talking about when it says hope. Biblical hope is not a wish. It's not a certainty. It is a certainty. It's active. We put our hope into something, something unmovable, something stable, something certain, something that despite whatever else is happening around us, it itself remains a firm foundation for us. Optimism is rooted in the changing circumstances of my life and yours. Hope is unwavering. Here I would say is one of the greatest differences between the two. When we say the word optimism, when we say hope in that optimistic kind of framework, we are saying we believe things will get better in the future. But biblical hope says, even if they don't, I will continue to hope in God. It's not rooted in my circumstances. It's not rooted in, in, in whatever I can see in the future or what I hope and, and in terms of this idea that things will always perpetually get better. It's that even if they don't, even if the world crashes down around me, everything goes dark, I will continue to put my hope in God. And so why is it then that this uh, writer of Proverbs uses these words 
Why are these words expectation, wicked, and perish put together then in contrast to hope? What's the relationship? What, what, is, what is so wicked about expectations? Expectations and hope are not synonymous words. They are not the same thing at all. And in case um, you needed an example for that, let me just gauge your emotional uh, feelings right now. When, when if today your child this afternoon says, I hope after church we can go get some ice cream. Or they say, after church today, I expect to get ice cream. Feel a little different, right? If you're a teacher here, we got some folks in education perhaps, right? If a student says, like, I hope I did well on this test, right, versus I expect that you will grade me well on this test, right? Hope and expectations are two totally different things, which is why the writer of Proverbs contrasts them here. Um, Why would these expectations, though, be related to wickedness? I mean, if we understand the difference, what about having expectations would cause the writer of Proverbs to say wicked? Well, it's rooted in self-righteousness, first of all. It's rooted in our self-righteousness and our pride, this this sense of entitlement, right? It makes your relationship with God transactional instead of a living and live and active kind of faith. If I do this, God must do this. That's what expectations say doesn't even have to be conscious. You can just look at your own heart and when things don't turn out the way you want, when, when, you, when you begin to despair, when you get frustrated with God, when you begin to question Him, ultimately what's driving that in your heart is not a hope, but an expectation. I came through on my end, now you need to do your part. I heard an interview recently with Tim Keller. Many of you are probably familiar with him. Um, struggling with pancreatic cancer and in that interview, he had this very vulnerable moment. And the interviewer was asking some of the key things that he had learned during this time, and he said, I'll tell you the most important thing that I have learned in this time. He said, even at my age, even with all the ministry that I have done around the world, the books that I have written, the sermons I have preached, he said, when I heard the words cancer, he said, even in my own heart, what I realized at that moment is that I have always had a transactional relationship with God. And he said it was very, very uh, humble of him. He said, I had to admit, I'm sitting there in the doctor's office, and I even had to say, God, do you know who I am? (laughs) You're going to give cancer to me, right? Look at all I've done for you. You're going to take me out of the game of spreading the gospel around the world? It's a very honest assessment, and I think that every single one of us has been at those uh, points in our own lives, right? Or we we wouldn't have said, my ultimate hope is in these things or those things, or I'm not expecting God to do anything until he doesn't come through for you in the way that you want. It's also rooted in our presumptions. James 4 says, now listen, you who say tomorrow or today, we will go do this or go to that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Our expectations presume on God. You know, I saw, uh, as probably many of you did too, where, where this connection between expectations, my presumptions on God, they, they welled up as they did for so many people across the world during this age of uh, COVID, the pandemic, and 
It does seem like in many ways we're past that, and yet we still continue to feel the reverberations. But I remember in the, in the heart and soul of that, that time there, as many of you did too, where, where all of the mission work I was doing came to a close, couldn't get on a plane anymore. Uh, I, like your pastors, was sitting in an empty room preaching to a camera, right? Probably most importantly of all, my NFL season got canceled, right? And I just turned into a little whiny baby, you know? And, and, and it wouldn't have been that any of those things that I would have told you a week earlier, two weeks before, that those are the things that I was ultimately putting my hope in until they were gone. And I began to see in my own heart this presumption, this, this is what I deserve. This is what I expect. And God, you must give it to me. And these are wicked aspects of expectation because they ultimately make God out to be a servant to humans instead of the other way around try to use him to get what we want. Expectations place us, us at the center. Well, this biblical hope that Proverbs is writing about put God at the center. Expectations say, I get what I want. And biblical hope says, I get what God wants. That's biblical hope. And what this proverb teaches us is if you only hold on to what you want, your expectations, your vision of the future, as I shared with the men this week, your vision of ultimately what is the good life. You hold on tight to that. All of your dreams will perish. The righteous, those who hope, those whose only expectation is that they will receive what God wants them to receive, they experience joy. And they experience joy precisely because if all you desire in your life, if what your hope is ultimately tied to is whatever God is going to give you, it can't ever fail. It can never fail. You will always be guaranteed to get exactly what God wants to have in your life. You always have it. You can tie your mask to it. And that is why... Many people have said throughout the years that hope and faith are so intertwined one to one another. Even the great John Calvin said, the word hope I take for faith, he says. And indeed, hope is nothing else but the constancy of faith. Or to put it another way, biblical hope is hope applied. It's active, right? If we have faith in God, if we have trust in this sovereign creator who knew us before the foundation of the earth, if we really do know him, then our hope is ultimately tied to something that cannot pass away, cannot be on any kind of shifting sand in our life. It is rooted. It is real. It's not going anywhere. And so then with this in view, seems like we've got to wrestle with this next proverb then. Hope deferred is our second point. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. I don't know about you, but throughout the majority of my life, the way that I would often read this proverb is, God, I can't hold out forever, you know. When are you going to come through for me? And then it would, it would, like, I would quote this back to him, as if, like he needed the reminder, remember, hope deferred makes me sick, Right? That's how I would always read it. I would like read that and I'd be like, yes, good. The writer of Proverbs being so honest. It does make me sick. God, you know this. Don't continue to make me wait. Uh, it's just uh, reading it with that cynical tone. And um, reading it almost as if uh, I was Alexander Pope who once said, blessed is he who expects nothing for he shall never be disappointed. Right? 
proverb can make it sound as if we are fools for ever having hope, doesn't it? Kind of makes it sound like, why, why would you ever ultimately put your hope into God? Because all he's going to ever do is disappoint you. And if he does come through, it won't be in the right kind of timing. And you're just going to have to wait and wait and wait. And eventually you're going to grow sick. And some of us read that and we say, that's exactly where I am today. That's exactly my experience of the Christian life. Continuing all the time to just wait on the other side of the horizon. When is God going to finally come through? And then I read this. One commentator finally helped me as I was wrestling with this passage one afternoon. He said, the proverb is an index of lives that are moving either toward final despair of every expectation in death or toward a fulfillment of every desire in the everlasting presence of the Lord. So, so to put it another way, what the, what the writer of Proverbs was saying is that hope is universal. Every single person, and I don't, I don't uh, know if every person here is a believer or not. If you're not, we're super glad you're here. The reality is you hope as well. Every single human being puts their hope in something. We are, we're just a hoping kind of creature is what the writer of Proverbs is telling us. And he is saying, and some of you, because of the nature of what it is you are putting your hope in, are going to get very, very sick. He said, that, that's what the writer is saying here to us. He's saying, look, you're going to move in one direction or the other. And if you put your hope in something other than God, you are just going to continue to go down the road of despair. That's what he means by it. hope deferred is sick when your hope is in the wrong thing. But for those that believe and trust in the promises of God and his character, his attributes, and his work in your life, he's saying, you will never be disappointed. Never ever disappointed. And what this Proverbs is warning against is ultimately putting our hope in things that aren't ever going to come to pass. Never. Because they're not the things that God has desired for our own life. Holding out for hope that things God has never promised, that will make you sick. And generally, I would say for us, whether you're a Christian or not, it's pretty universal in my 20 years of ministry, what I generally see people trying to put their hope in, if it's not in God, is money, relationships, their career, and their health. It's those things that on any given day, if any of those things are not doing so well, you're not doing so well. And if at any given time those things are, are meeting the expectations that you have for your life, you're doing just fine. Those four areas, money, relationships, career, and health. And what the writer of Proverbs is telling us Nothing more that we've all experienced personally. When we place our hope in any of those things, and there certainly could be a longer list. Those are just generalities. When we put it in our money, our relationships, our careers, our health, and God did not pull through for us like we expected, we get emotionally and psychologically sick. We get angry. We get bitter. We get irritable. We get unmotivated. We become spiritually numb. And in contrast, he says, a desired fulfilled is a tree of life. And that is ultimately what I want. I believe that's ultimately what you want as well. How do we get this then? How do we move away from just the constant temptation for us to be grabbing a hold of things that cannot possibly give us life? 
things that are always just shifting. They're out of our control. And how do we begin to be a people who cultivate a desire for ultimately what God wants for us? And let that be our hope. We would would pray honestly, Lord, my desire for my life is to receive out of your hands whatever it is you're going to give me and to trust you, that you are a good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children, that your ultimate concern and care for my life and yours is that you are going to conform me to the image of Christ. And because we are broken people in a broken world, your life and mine is a testimony to the fact that how that normally comes is through suffering, doesn't it? As in my life most likely in yours as well, and that God loves us enough not even to spare us the difficulties of life itself because his greater concern is that we would, each one of us, conform increasingly to the image of his son. How do we move then from expectation or optimism to this true biblical hope? Last point here, hope discovered. Proverbs 24, 14 says, Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, if you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. Wisdom, he says, if you find it, you will have a future and you will have a hope that is not cut off. In essence, saying, look, here is the key. Here's the key to move away from from mere optimism or expectation to something deeper and lasting. And what the Bible defines as hope, he says the key is wisdom. If you find wisdom, you will have a future and you will have a hope that is not cut off. What is that hope? What is that ultimate hope that cannot be cut off? Paul tells us in the letter, his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 4, 16 to 18, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. And what Paul is telling us is the way towards wisdom is for us to to wrestle each one of us with this idea that he says it's foolishness. It is foolishness for any of us to be preoccupied with our outer self, with what is wasting away, to put our hope in those kinds of things. He says it's wisdom to be concerned about our inner self being renewed day by day. It's a hard word to hear from Paul, but he would say part of growing in our wisdom is to recognize that it is foolish to focus on our light, momentary afflictions. And when you hear that, you might even have a whole bunch of different definitions of what Paul meant, but keep in mind, this is a man who probably suffered a whole lot more physically, emotionally, spiritually than anybody else in this room. And writing from prison multiple beatings, being stoned almost to death, he writes to us about the foolishness of focusing on our light and momentary afflictions. And he says it's wisdom then to understand this, that whatever God has allowed, the suffering in our life that he has allowed, he said for all of it, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, he says. That's what you're being prepared for. He says you are eternal beings. 
And that whatever happens here and whatever amount of time that God gives us, whether that's 10, 20, 50, 80 years on this planet, he said it is light and it is momentary because in the future where we are headed, what God is preparing you for ultimately is to live for eternity with him. And he said whatever else happens in the time between now and then, he said it is light and it is momentary and you better get ready is what he is saying. What God cares about is not this outer man. It's going to be wasting away. He said the inner man, that That is what he's preparing for eternity. He says wisdom is focusing on that. Which is why in the Philippians, Paul says again to us, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I heard one pastor at a time talking about trying to understand the Greek language here and the strength of what Paul was saying in that in that phrase about what it meant for him to strain forward for what lies ahead, and he likened it to a dog straining against its leash. For those of us with a hope set on things below rather than Christ, we are all straining, aren't we? It's an apt picture regardless of whichever way you're straining. If you're hoping for God, but if you're not hoping for God, you are still that dog on a leash that is straining and pulling against God like a dog on a leash, exhausting ourselves constantly, striving for the things that God never intended for us to have in our life, and it's suffocating. And instead, Paul says, I'm straining forwards towards a prize that will not disappoint. The things I strain ahead for are the very things God has promised. It is a hope, and it is a future that is sure. And that hope, that future, it's the same hope that drove Jesus to the cross and held him there, even as he was forsaken by his own Father. It's the promise of the resurrection. Biblical hope is grounded in the promise that this world really is not all there is, friends. It is not all there is. It is grounded in the resurrection of Christ Himself, the gift of the Spirit that was poured out on all of us as a down payment, the Bible says, as a guarantee for every single one of us that we too will be resurrected from the dead. What the writer of Proverbs would tell us today and what Paul has echoed, that your possessions, your job, your beauty, your vacations, your Instagram-worthy food, your health, they will all perish. All of it. None of them are immortal or eternal. And that is why if you hear nothing else today from what I've said, if you hear nothing else, hear this again. Our hope is not in something, but it is in someone. Christ himself is our hope. It is in a person. It is not in a situation. It is not in an optimism that things might get better. It is not in some future version of myself. It is in a person. It is in Christ himself. As we grab a hold of him, the writers of Proverbs would say, you cannot, you cannot lose the hope that you have grabbed a hold of because Christ himself has overcome death, evil, the sin in your own heart. It has all been crushed and it is a promise as Christ is raised from the dead that he says, I'm coming back and I'm bringing you with me. And nothing else that you would put your hope in can compare with that, he says. Do not strain as a dog on the leash towards the things that are perishing and falling away. Friends, I would say this. As the Bible has already said, maybe you hear it today with different ears when the Bible tells us that all of the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. 
all of the promises. There cannot be any kind of hope, expectation, optimism, whatever you want to call it, that you could possibly have that would be better than all of the promises that God has already fulfilled and already said yes to in Christ Jesus. And so if you're finding yourself today without hope, it could be because you've wrongly believed that Jesus is merely a means rather than an end. It might be that you've mistakenly, not even intentionally, viewed Jesus as just one part of your life. Instead, the totality of it and the source. It could possibly be true that what you really want is a taste of heaven right now without realizing that in Christ Jesus, friends, we already have it. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject things to Himself. And we have this hope. And it will not be cut off precisely because we have a King who is willing to be cut off for us. Understand this truth. That's the source of wisdom. That's what Proverbs would have us leave today. To grab a hold of that kind of wisdom and you will have a hope that does not disappoint. Um, conclude with just this one story um, I shared with the, the men this week that I've spent the last 10 years traveling quite a bit, working with an international ministry that trains pastors overseas in Muslim regions. And uh, on one of those occasions, my, my family got to travel with me. This would have been a, about a year and a half ago. And when we were coming back, um, we got stuck. Uh, there were still uh, things going on with COVID outside of the United States. And computers had crashed, and we were stuck overnight in an airport in Montreal. And we were part of this line that just seemed to keep going on for eternity. It was probably six, eight hours. We stood in this line together with all of our luggage. Everybody's exhausted. And so I, uh, I said, let's everybody just take one opportunity right now to give one thing that they're thankful about, right? Because there was a lot of complaining going on, and I was doing it just as much as everybody else. And so one of my boys, he said, well, I'm thankful that there's AC in here. And there was. It was great. Uh, my wife said, I'm thankful I don't have COVID right now because there was a whole separate line for those folks and we didn't want to be going where they were. And then my, my second oldest, he's 18. He's the, he's the snarkiest of all of us. He, uh, he said, I'm glad I'm not standing in line in Auschwitz right now. I don't know if he really understood the weight of what he was saying, if he's just being a smart aleck. But man, I'll tell you what, for the next few hours, that's all I could think about. And I shared with these men this week a bit of the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and you know others of Corey Ten Boone and, and the story of watching her sister literally die in Auschwitz. And what we do know from the historical record is that there was a time where hundreds of people, like that day in the Montreal airport, there was hundreds of people that were standing in line in Auschwitz at one point. And so many of those people, when you hear their testimony, when you hear their story, they knew this was the last moment of their life. And they held on to hope in the Lord in that moment. In that moment. And for me, there's just nothing that could probably capture more powerfully what it means to have biblical hope. That when everything has gone dark, everything, when everything has been lost, when it could not possibly get 
any worse that there are people standing in that line today and with their very last breath, looking forward to, praising, crying out to the God who they knew on the other side of this was going to welcome them home for eternity. I want to live with that hope. I want you to live with that hope and to know today that it is ours and it is available in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, there's a heaviness whenever we open your word, Lord God, where it's moments where time touches eternity. Lord, would you, you reach down, you condescend to your people, and you speak in a language that we can understand, Lord, and you touch our hearts and our minds, Lord God. And I pray for all of us in this space today, Lord, that we really would be transformed, Lord, that your word is living and it is active, and it wants to come in and, and just rip the old stuff out and put in its place the biblical truth, Lord, that is not sitting on sifting sand, Lord. We praise you for your son that has secured for us a hope that cannot be tarnished, Lord. And I pray for those that are heavy-hearted that are sitting here today who are wrestling this very moment. But what about my situation? You don't know how dark it is in my life right now. Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would come to them and you would remind them in the gospel, yes, he does. He knows you, he sees you. And he's given you a hope. Grab a hold of it. Hold on to it for all eternity. In Christ's name, amen.